Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Election Day. Last week, I talked about Joe Biden's economic policy agenda. This week, I'm continuing that series, and today I'm going to talk about a surprising priority for him, which has been climate change. And here with me to talk about that is my good friend and regional leader of the Sunrise Movement, Thomas Lyons. Hey, everyone, and thank you, Justin, for having me on today. Okay, let's get started by talking about your movement and why you support it. What is the Sunrise Movement? So the Sunrise Movement is a national organization of youth uh, dedicated to fighting climate change. The policy goal of the Sunrise Movement, um, specifically the national policy goal, is the passage uh, and introduce of legislation of the Green New Deal put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Um, however, the regional groups have other specific goals that are not directly related to the Green New Deal. So for example, in, in the Deerfield chapter, we've been working on it, the implementation of uh, local school thrift stores or working with cafeteria staff to change the way that our, our meals are sourced or to reduce the carbon footprint in our meals, reducing meat, for example. Um, but yes, globe, uh, nationally, the movement is uh, has the policy goal of passing the Green New Deal. Let's talk about that for a little bit. What is the Green New Deal? Because obviously it's been quite controversial. And to you, why is it so important to get that passed? Sure. Um, and I guess the verb passage uh, of the Green New Deal can be slightly misleading. It's not necessarily some sort of bill or piece of legislature that if passed would, um, I don't know, for example, people talk about like eliminating cows or eliminating combustion engine cars, but rather it is a, a set of guidelines or, um, or principles that the federal government should follow. Um, so for example, reduce, yeah, uh, carbon emissions reduction, carbon sequestration, um, different different goals within the auto industry or the oil or gas industry. But, um, but rather than, uh, rather than being some sort of policy that would target, um, the, the passage of the Green New Deal would not result in the tailoring of specific industries. Rather, it is a set of guidelines and principles to, to push the U.S. forward into an economic future where we have green climate jobs on the, the front line of that agenda. Yeah, that sounds about right. After all, it is a resolution, not a bill. So it's more about setting those priorities and setting those goals, right? Mm -hmm. um, I like that you point out sort of that degree of misinformation and mainly distortion that goes around the climate change um, issue area. And it is a very partisan one too, right? A lot of conservatives like to portray it as this incredibly radical issue, even though it might just be like economic issues or foreign policy issues. Why do you think climate change in particular is so partisan? Why don't people just believe in the science that's out there? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and and really pertinent to to the future of climate policy. Um, I mean, looking at, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with people not wanting to upset the apple cart or people that are worried about 
job loss in specifically the oil or gas industry. Um, many economists predict that there will certainly be losses in those industries as the U.S. transitions to a clean energy future, but those job losses will be offset by job gains in the clean energy sectors. But in terms of misinformation, I was just reading an article on the Federalist website uh, a couple of days ago that that um, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the climate countdown clock in New York that estimates to be a seven or eight yeah. years left before we reach a point of irreversible change or damage to or ecological health. Mm-hmm. And the, the thesis of this author in, in The Federalist, he yeah. argued that um, it is impossible to predict a certain set date of which there is a point of no ecological return. And um, I haven't read a lot about threshold dates, so I, I can't really argue with the, the specifics of his argument about certain dates. However, I think that that attitude can be dangerous um, because if we are to, if we're to, um, I mean, the, the logical conclusion of the argument that there is no certain specific threshold date we can predict is to say that there is never any danger to, to going too far or there is no reason to turn around to a, a sustainable, um, a, a sustainable footprint for the US. Um, so therefore, I think misinformation might not just be, oh, the planet isn't warming. Human-led activities have nothing to do with planet warming. It could be something like in The Federalist, where um, a, a writer argues that climate change is, yes, real, but we don't know that it will be disastrous or, or catastrophic, and therefore we shouldn't take any steps to fix it. And I think that that can lead to complacency and can be just as dangerous as people outright denying the science of climate change. Yeah, I mean, for a progressive policy group like yours, and really for the planet and the species as a whole, um, that lack of urgency can be just as dangerous as denialism, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I'll ask another related question next. But first of all, what do you think we can do about that attitude? Does it require a personal level epiphany for everyone or is there um, something that we can actually do about it? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. And and I don't have any great answer. I think it's important when trying to to reason with people. I think it's important to know them first as a friend or a family member to have some other emotional connection with them before you attempt to. um, I think it's important to have a bond with someone that surpasses whatever policy issue or science issue you're you're debating or, or attempting to, to convince them of. Um, so yeah, I think I think maybe it does come down to a sort of personal epiphany for every person. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I have no great answer to how to change. No, no, that was a <laughs> no, that was a great answer, and I think it applies to a lot of different things, not just climate change also specifically like issues of race. I think that's one of the big realizations we're coming to in American politics around 2020 is that a lot of it is personal. Um, I was also thinking that education is going forward a big factor. Obviously, climate change is a right now issue, um, but there are a lot of countries that are instituting it as part of education and that also helps to shape the mindset. Um, The other thing I'm gonna circle back to that you mentioned earlier, was sort of about climate change and jobs, right? 
And so a lot of the people who say that, let's say the Green New Deal is too radical, aren't necessarily climate denialists. They just don't think that urgent action is required or that climate change isn't a bigger issue than the economy. So do you think it is possible for sustainability and job creation and economic growth to have a symbiotic effect? Or do you think we have to choose climate change over the economy? Well, I think in a conversation about the economics of climate change, it's always crucial to remember the long-term effects of no action on climate. Uh, Miami alone has $400 billion worth of assets that are at risk to sea level rise. Um, and that's just, just one coastal city in the US. Um, I think it's 20 million homes in the US are, are at risk of um, being inundated by floods due to sea level rise. So I think when we have a conversation about the economy as related to climate change, yes, it's crucial to remember that uh, job creation and job loss will be necessary factors to transitioning to a clean energy future. But I think even more importantly, it is, it is pertinent to remember that inaction will lead to uh, incredible economic harm even just two or three decades in the future. I think it's estimated that by 20, uh, 2100, if, if we take no action on climate now, like 2,100, 5 to 20% of the U.S. annual GDP uh, of today will, will be lost by that point due to, um, you know, changing weather as it relates to agriculture or sea level rise as it relates to the, the economies of coastal cities. So, yes, there will be job loss in the oil and gas sectors, um, but that is a, a necessary a necessary sacrifice for the economic health of, of this country and of the world two or three decades in the future. Okay, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second and push you a little bit on that. Um, you just said it's a necessary sacrifice to lose the oil and gas industries, the coal industry, and that that will be offset by the economic benefits of embracing climate change and embracing sustainability. But to a lot of people, their immediate reality is that they can't afford their jobs to be lost, specifically mm -hmm. in areas like the Midwest. I think when we think about the previous president, that's part of the reason he was able to appeal to that demographic. And so um, what would you say to those people who need those jobs now, not just 20 or 30 years in the future? Yeah, no, that, that, that is a really good point. And regulation uh, is, is rare to win over voters. Um, I think it's also it's important to remember that the second section of the Green New Deal specifically discusses the importance of providing job training to people that will lose their jobs as, as the U.S. energy sector transitions. Um, but I think it's, it's a good point that a coal miner of, of 20 or 30 years probably won't have the skill set to transition to working on some solar facility. Um, so. Yeah, I think it is important that AOC and Ed Markey um, are thinking through the necessary transition, the skill transition for uh, people that are trying to change industries or that are forced to change industries. Um, so I agree, you bring up a good point, um, but there is there's no great answer besides job training will be important. As you mentioned, education, educating our workforce, 
Um, but yeah, I think I think it is more important to think long term here. Okay, I yeah, I mean, I wasn't aware of that the Green New Deal included that um, section about job training and stuff. I think also for those of you who listened last week, I talked a little bit about Andrew Yang's theory of an economy that works for the people. And I guess part of the solution long-term to the job losses created by climate change is a great greater social welfare net. And that's probably why it does come hand in hand with a lot of other liberal policy positions. Um, yeah, um, one one popular policy is is a carbon tax, um, and the idea is that that would drive market forces, and, and people would purchase less combustion engine cars and such. Um, I remember in seventh grade, I took a science class, and we were learning about various climate policies. And for homework one night, our teacher assigned us to call our local representative and either explain in favor or against a carbon tax. Um, and I went to a public middle school. And so there were, there were a lot of kids from low income families there. And I remember coming into class the next day and turning to a friend and saying like, oh, did you, did you call? Like, what did you say? And he was like, yeah, I told my representative that we should not implement a carbon tax. And I was like, why, why would you say that? Don't you care about the, you know, the future of our planet? Um, and he was like, well, what about people that are struggling to get by every day? How are they going to pay for gas? How are they going to drive their car, get their kids to school? And so that, that really shook me, changed my perspective on viewing simply ecological health and economic prosperity as two separate issues. Um, one great thing I think about many carbon taxes that have been proposed in, right now is that they will create through that tax some sort of, as you mentioned, some sort of social welfare net um, that could they could offset losses by low-income families for paying for higher gas prices, for example, with some sort of tax uh, reduction or, or deduction. Um, so yeah, to the point of economic disparities, I think it is important to remember that, that low-income families and, and families with, with low training in some sort of green energy sector will be affected the most, and it is vitally important to provide some sort of social safety net for those people. Yeah, that carbon tax is a really interesting thing, just to go a little bit off tangent for a second, because personally, I do agree with you. I think long-term, it is a necessary thing that will have to be integrated at some point if we want to reach um, neutral carbon emissions. But again, tax has such a negative connotation. <laughs> and people understand, let's say if you had to tax cigarettes, or if you had to tax um, liquor, but yeah. then being able to drive a car is such an obvious thing for Americans right now. It's at what point do you say this is just as detrimental to our communal health? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like that anecdote about kind of seeing the other perspective and yeah, climate and the economy are, are so intertwined. I think one of the big challenges that um, President Biden and future presidents will have to overcome is how, how do you make those two things prosper and succeed together? Mm -hmm. And to me, one of the things that's been most striking about Biden's climate plan is not only the urgency of it, but also the economic aspect of it and him realizing that, hey, my base is in the Midwest and I need to get those people to succeed 
as we move into progressive climate policies. And so that leads into um, this next bit of the episode. Obviously, I'll come back to sort of the bigger picture at the end. Um, But let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden's policies on the issue of climate. What do you think about the steps he's so far taken in his first couple of weeks? So without the support of, of Congress, um, largely he's had to, I mean, he, I think, exclusively has used executive action. And much of that has been um, reversing the, the um, I think, over 100 climate, climate regulation rollbacks that the Trump administration put in place. Um, so it makes you question the permanence of any of those actions if if the next administration a more conservative administration could simply reverse those reverse those policies again um with with the 50 50 split in the senate currently and a democrat senator like joe manchin from west virginia a coal heavy state having even approved some of some of the trump administration's rollbacks i do find it difficult to foresee some sort of congressional joint bipartisan effort to tackle climate agenda. Um, so I think that President Biden will be reduced to, to using mainly executive action to get his, his climate policies through. Um, not that I don't approve of, uh, you know, revoking permits for Arctic drilling or um, stopping the Keystone pipeline. Those are just two examples. Um, but however, I do worry about the permanence of these actions if he receives little support from Congress. Yeah, that, that is true. I, I didn't even think about sort of maybe eight years, 10 years into the future, what happens to all of this, mm-hmm. but just given the immediate shift, uh, seeing that we're still only one month into the new administration, when we think about those regulations, when we think about the Paris Climate Accord, um, the Keystone Pipeline, all those different things. How big is that to you, or is it, or is it really just, um, you know, a small thing in, in the grand scheme of things? No, I think it is big. Um, people throw around the Paris Climate Accord a lot. But I think it's important to remember that that is non-binding, um, and as we saw with President, former President Trump, it can, you know, easily be reversed. Um, one big change that I think is important is the compliance and eagerness of uh, some companies in the auto industry, General, Mortar, General Motors and Ford recently announced that they would be transitioning away from combustion engine cars and to, um, to, to electric vehicles. And so I think that if there is some, another conservative administration that comes in eight or 10 years in the future, um, I think that having the, the support of uh, large companies in the auto sector having support that they they are pushing for um, more more electric vehicles. I think that that will make it harder for. I mean, it'll just give less necessity for future administrations to reverse some of Biden's current rollouts. I remember President Obama near the end of his second term uh, tried to put into action a proposal to. I think it was transition maybe 35% of, of the auto industry's cars to electric vehicles by 2025 and the Supreme Court uh, knocked that down. And now with GM and Ford uh, taking that transition themselves, I think that that shows, I don't wanna 
I don't want to overly compliment uh, an industry that is directly leading to the destruction of our planet, but I think that that shows uh, an optimistic future for climate policy if you have or if you are working in partnership with current companies. Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. I think that private sector change really is huge. And there's only so much a government can do on anything. And in the end, those changes, when we think about General Motors and these different auto industries, and when we think about the rise of companies like Tesla, I think perhaps those will be the biggest things, you know, when it's all said and done. Um, obviously me on my show, um, I'm more about positive reinforcement. That's one of the big themes I've continued over from, um, the previous administration, um, he shall not be named. So yeah, I mean, auto and auto companies, good job. Um, all right, let's, let's look forward a little bit. What would you like to see in a Biden administration to you? What are the solutions to this climate crisis? What's necessary to respond what would make you satisfied about their progress? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, it comes down to three main, the three main drivers of, of climate change. The first is pollution from transportation. So that's cars and planes. That's about a third of uh, global emissions. Um, the second, um, I believe the second is the agriculture industry. So if you're thinking about that ties into transportation as well, or methane produced by cows. Um, and, and the third is, is methane leaks from, uh, from, from oil and gas production. So I think, I think the auto industry and the agriculture industry present the clearest paths forward for the Biden administration. Um, limiting the number of, of combustion vehicles on the roads, transitioning to electric vehicles, and then in the in the agriculture industry, um, maybe it could be something as drastic as only providing USDA farm subsidies to to uh, not necessarily simply organic farmers, but farmers that practice soil conservation or maybe practice no-till farming. Um, farmers that reduce their pesticide use, uh, farmers, farmers that, that graze sustainably on, on grasslands. So I, I see the clearest paths forwards in the, the auto and agriculture sectors. And I think that it'll be harder to regulate um, large scale factories when the technology doesn't really exist or is not is not super economically feasible at the moment for large scale battery powered factories that they could power, you know, 360 million homes in the US. Yeah, for the listener, if I can just chip in a little bit here um, about sort of transportation. We know, obviously, Pete Buttigieg, kind of a fan favorite is now the secretary of that department. And in terms of Joe Biden's agenda when he was running for president, a big part of his platform was improving America's infrastructure and specifically energy infrastructure as well, that that needs a full revamping. And I think that very much will play out hand in hand with the climate agenda. Same goes for obviously oil and gas, him putting in place once again, those regulations, even though, of course, like you said, fighting big oil is always you know, it's one of the big challenges along with like the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I like how you clarified on agriculture. I think that's one area where 
again, coming back to the distortion, it's very easy for anti-climate people to do that because farmers are an important voting block. And to say that, hey, these liberals don't like cows, that is a great talking point for them. But really all it is, is about um, promoting more sustainable farming than what we have now, right? Yeah, um, I I personally eat a vegetarian diet. I think that, um, yeah, I, I tell you, I, for me, that seems like a, a, a good, healthy, sustainable choice for me personally. But I don't, I don't think necessarily that, that cows or meat are inherently bad. I think it's important to transition away from uh, large feedlock, you know, corporate industrialized production of cows to, to yeah, like free, free grazing, um, free, free grazing cattle. Um, so certainly I don't think cows are evil or anything. I, I just think it's important to transition to a uh, more sustainable and limited production of cow. Yeah. And again, climate and the economy, really, this is about taking away those industrial farms and going back to the small business model that we had before the really modern era. Um, I want to ask you about two specific areas in which he could take some action. Um, obviously, these are also much, much bigger questions than the current president. So first of all, America's ways of producing energy. So transitioning away from fossil fuels and moving towards what really? Because, you know, solar power, wind power, are those feasible on a national scale? And if not, then what does the future look like in terms of America's energy? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, solar, offshore wind, hydroelectric production, nuclear energy. Um, these are these are big questions. I haven't I haven't read a lot of studies on the feasibility of wide scale production to power the entire country. I um, I mean, Biden's plan calls for, um, I think, I mean, carbon neutrality by, by 2050, and I believe by 2035, um, do you know what the number is? Something about the percentage of, of energy in the U.S. by 2035. Eliminate carbon emissions from the electric sector by 2035. Yeah. So basically, you know, um, clean electricity by that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I can't I can't speak directly to its feasibility. Um, I haven't I haven't I haven't researched enough about the large scale production of, of wind farms or or solar or hydroelectric nuclear. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean I have I have trust in Gina McCarthy and John Kerry. Um, to, to, to push us forward to some sort of clean energy by agenda by 2035. But yeah, um, sorry, I can't speak directly to its feasibility. Yeah, just from my kind of prior experience with this sort of subject matter, one of the big things I was surprised by is actually that renewable energy sources are in fact cheaper to produce and to use than fossil fuels. And really the only reason we're continuing to rely on coal and oil and these kinds of things. Number one, obviously the economic aspect of it for jobs, but also because that's just the thing we have in place. And there's that inertial force that we need to kind of get past the first bump. And Biden's big investment and innovation in that area could be the big spark. Um, Or or maybe not. Yeah. 
One, one really interesting economic number, I think I read that in 2019, 40% of the U.S. workforce is involved directly or was involved directly or indirectly in the clean energy sector. So um, there are certainly employees and uh, there, there is an industry that is there um, that's, that is, is not up for debate. Um, however, is, is it possible to transition completely to clean energy by 2035? Um, I don't know, 14 years seems, seems pretty soon. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. It does seem like a bit of a very ambitious goal. The second specific area I wanted to talk to you about, it's one that I'm personally very interested in, and that's the foreign policy side of things. Mm-hmm. America is a big, um, you know, America is one of the top countries in terms of emissions, but I don't think it is the top anymore in, in 2020. And certainly other countries will come to surpass our number. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to you um, that America needs to work with other countries to try to make this a global issue? And what does that look like? Certainly, I think uh, a large part of, of the former administration's America first motto um, that was showcased in, in getting out of the Paris Climate Accords. And I think their, one of their main problems with that agreement was that it allowed a country like India that has not fully gone through its, its industrial revolution uh, like the U.S. has to, to, um, yeah, to create infrastructure using uh, fossil fuels. Whereas a country like the U.S. would 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 have to would have to cut down their their fossil fuel sectors. Um, John Kerry's new new position largely is traveling to foreign governments and talking about the regulations the U.S. has put in place, the actions we're taking, and he also has a seat at the the national national defense um, I don't know committee, um, and and so. I I am optimistic with these new changes that that um, that climate action is becoming a forefront of national security and, and foreign involvement. However, I think John Kerry is going to have a pretty tough job talking to foreign leaders about the great steps the U.S. is taking if the U.S. isn't taking great permanent steps. Um, I think a lot of other countries are cognizant that. In, in 2012, uh, 2008, 2012, when Obama was president and he put in place a lot of these, uh, these environmental regulations and protections, those were, a lot of them were easily reversed by the Trump administration, um, now being reversed again by the Biden administration. But I think other countries are aware that without bipartisan support in Congress, you need 60 votes just to get something on the Senate floor. Without bipartisan support from Congress, permanence, there will be little permanence in climate action in the US. And I think that makes John Kerry's job pretty difficult when he's trying to uh, enthusiastically talk about the climate action in the US and, and how the world needs to share that responsibility. Yeah. When I saw that announcement, one of the things that really struck me was that he chose John Kerry, who was a former Secretary of State to be Mm -hmm. the special envoy for climate. And that does highlight that part of things. I'm going to come back to what you said about congressional action and the political reality of it towards the end. Um, But very quickly, I want to ask you, is any of this enough? 
because I think there are kind of two um, wings to this um, climate movement. And there's some people who say, as long as we're making progress, that's okay. And then there are the people who are saying, look, come on, we need to get here by this time mm-hmm. or else we're all going to die. And so, you know, on, on what on what place on that spectrum do you fall? Growth versus proficiency. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the 2035 number about, uh, clean, about a completely clean energy sector and the 2050 number about uh, carbon emission neutrality, uh, net zero, is in line with many scientists' prediction of that threshold date, the threshold level I was talking about a little bit earlier um, that would avoid the worst of the climate catastrophes. But I mean, let's be honest, we've seen record-breaking wildfires in Australia and on the West Coast in the U.S. recently. Um, I mean, climate disasters are here and they are only going to get worse. Um, So is it enough? I mean, anything we do now will not be enough in the sense that there is a a set amount of carbon and methane already locked into our lower atmosphere. So the planet will continue to warm even if we drop to net zero emissions today. So is it enough? No, but I I think it is vitally important that we start now because if we don't get to these numbers by 2035 and 2050, um, yeah, we will see exponentially worse climate disasters. All right, that's great. So we're sort of coming to the end of that, um, you know, strong specific climate aspect of it. And none of this does matter in the end if, Congress doesn't do anything. So far, as you've said, it's been largely through executive actions. Um, how can we how can we get senators to vote in a certain way? So far, we've seen that science and scientific recommendation has not been enough. We've mm-hmm. seen that also not only in climate, but also in COVID, that sort of expertise is coming into question. And so obviously the science isn't enough, then what is enough? How can we see action? Or do we just have to wait until it's a new generation? This is a bit of a cynical answer, um, but we were talking about the private sector earlier, specifically the auto industry and steps that GM and Ford are taking to, uh, to create more sustainable business models. And I do think that lobbying from those organizations um, will, be, will be important in flipping uh, more conservative mindsets in Congress. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, I, I, I think it really does come down to private sector enthusiasm for regulation and, and absent that on a large scale, I think it will be difficult to, to really create long-standing legislature in Congress. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that is um, unfortunate, but I do think it is true. Um, You talked about lobbying groups. I mean, you are one of them. The Sunrise Movement is now, um, you guys are kind of the flag bearer and one of the most um, well-respected and influential movements on behalf of of climate change and that issue. So congratulations on that. I assume throughout the next four years, you're going to be continuing to push Joe Biden further to the left, or it seems we are calling it the left, given it shouldn't be a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. But it seems you are continuing to push Joe Biden to be um, more actionable on climate. 
Um, one of the things I haven't really seen, but I do hope to see in the near future as your influence grows is reaching out to people on the right and seeing uh, a more concerted effort for liberal action groups to, to try to push Republican senators to vote in their favor. Mm-hmm. But we'll see how that goes. And um, hopefully by, you know, by this time next year, things will be a little better. Obviously, climate disasters, these kinds of things do happen. And so um, maybe when the when the next big tragedy happens, we'll have you on to talk about that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Everyone will. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll associate you with that. Yes. Talk yeah. about how, how, how the whole world is burning. Thomas Lyons, the wildfire guy. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad to have the chance to share with your audience. Thank you so much.